This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now look, y'all, it is crazy outside. There's all kinds of stuff going on. If you are working a nine to five, you're probably stressed out about keeping your nine to five. If you don't have a nine to five, you're probably in the middle of trying to get a new nine to five. Or maybe you made the crazy leap to be a full-time entrepreneur like me. You got the world on fire all around you, middle of election year. A lot of stuff going on. It's just, it's absolutely nuts, right? It's nuts outside. And I could definitely see, I'll speak for me. Look, for me, I know I be going to therapy on a regular basis. I believe in therapy, all right? Hashtag uh, black folks need therapy. Hashtag we all need therapy. We all need it. And for me, I can say if it wasn't for therapy being like an ongoing maintenance tool in my toolkit to help me stay level and help me realize that I'm okay, everything around me is okay, here's what I can control, that has been critical for me. And I would hope that if you have thought about therapy, and if, or if you haven't thought about therapy, shoot, let's say you're like, like I ain't got time for therapy, I got, I'm too busy trying to make sure that these plates keep on spinning, I hope that you check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online. It's completely convenient, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, keyword licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, which is incredible. It's very challenging to move around and find the right therapist for you. The fact that BetterHelp is providing that as just part of your experience is incredible. So find your support, get the help you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com corp today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash corp, C-O-R-P. Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mama. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter the Access Point, a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point, airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard on livingcorporate.tv. There are parts of the rural South where 
the average life expectancy for a Black person is well below those initial age cutoffs for the vaccine, right? And so when we're not using an equity lens, who suffers? It's, it's Black folks. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And look, I hope everyone is taking care of themselves. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the Derek Chauvin trial last week. But I want to reiterate that I hope that you're prioritizing yourself. I hope that you're prioritizing your health. You're prioritizing your wellness, your peace of mind, your mental well-being. Um, you know, every time I like stumble across a clip here or there, I just... I get so, so triggered. Truly, I get disturbed um, just by the just the clips that I hear. So I can't and I, and I recognize everyone's different. And I also recognize that some of y'all may just want to be in the know. Um, for me, I, I had to back up and I hope that, you know, it may it, it, not just on that situation. I just hope that everyone who's listening to this is prioritizing themselves. We live in a world that constantly asks of us and that box will never be fully checked. Like they will continue to take. They being just the world. They'll continue to take. Your job will continue to take. Um, truly, your job will continue to take. Right there. They will never be satisfied with you. They will consume you um, until you are gone. Right. That's that's a function of white supremacy. It's a function of capitalism. Capitalism. Uh, a friend of mine has said a few different times. Uh, capitalism is really white supremacy in action. But my point is, is that. <laughs> The, the way that these systems work is they just they consume you and so you can't wait for the system to tell you to take a break you have to give yourself that break so i hope that you're taking care of yourself with that in mind i'm really excited about the guest that we have today dr blackstock if anyone follows the pod for those who are friends of the show who keep up with living corporate y'all know um the living corporate has deep respect for uh dr uni and dr Uche blackstock and i'm just thankful for the fact that we were able to have them both on. Uh, we have a, a really good conversation. We have, we talk about a lot of different things between health inequities and COVID vaccine accessibility to uh, the ivory and just, um, you know, uh, what does a more liberated future look like for black and brown folks um, in all spaces? And so I'm excited about that. But before we get there, we're going to tap in with Tristan. So we'll see you in a second. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, I want to talk about procrastination. We've all been there, whether it's during our job search, with tasks at work, or just something we need to do in our everyday lives. Sometimes, it's hard to get started on things you need to get done, and you'd rather sit on the couch to binge-watch something on Netflix. Sometimes, you start even doing what my best friend and I call productivating, where you do other things that need to get done instead of the task at hand. Believe me, I've been there, done that, and got multiple t-shirts. When we find ourselves in that situation, we tend to shame and guilt ourselves for not doing what we need to do. This only leads to a terrible cycle of more procrastination, which means that the task ends up still not getting done and you feel even worse. So, what should you do? Well, according to Forbes' Amy Blaschka, the next time you don't feel like doing something, you should try these three tips. First, acknowledge why you've been avoiding the task. 
It's not that you're lazy, it's that you're scared. You're afraid of failure, success, or simply not doing it perfectly. Those feelings are what we are trying to actively avoid by doing something that temporarily boosts our mood. So next time, instead of endlessly scrolling Instagram, try to face your emotions so you can work towards managing them. Second, forgive yourself for procrastinating. Research shows that people prone to procrastination are less compassionate towards themselves. But since procrastination is linked to negative feelings, if you can be self-compassionate, you will reduce the guilt you feel about procrastinating, which is one primary trigger. Studies show it can help you procrastinate less the next time around. Third, just get started. Let's be real, you more than likely will have a hard time getting yourself into the right mental and emotional state to get your task done. Instead of focusing on finding the right time, try to focus on getting started. I always suggest simply dedicating 15 minutes to the task you're avoiding. Any progress you can make will make you feel better, boost your self-esteem, and reduce your desire to procrastinate. All of us procrastinate at some point in our lives, but instead of telling ourselves to just do it like Nike, just try to get started. Next thing you know, you'll be done with the task you were dreading. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may help others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Break Room. Have you ever felt burnt out, depressed, or otherwise exhausted by being one of the onlys at work? You know what I'm talking about. Hosted by black psychologists, psychiatrists, and PhDs, The Break Room is a live weekly web show in the Living Corporate Network that discusses mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. Name another weekly show explicitly focused on mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. I'll wait. This is why you got to check out The Break Room, airing every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on livingcorporate.tv. Dr. Blackstock, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? You know what? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. You're still in the middle of this panty. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, I hear you. It's tough. It's tough. Um, look, let's, let's, let's start off with this. Like, you know, you and I connected. What was this like in 2019? Yeah, it was a while ago. Probably yeah. It was a while. yeah, definitely yeah. a while ago. Um, we connected in twenty nineteen because of a piece that you wrote about you about you like basically making a, a, a career transition. Yes. Can we talk can we talk a little bit about that piece and talk a bit about what inspired it and then kind of like what what were the immediate outcomes after after that after you published that? Yeah, so actually that piece had been months in the making, I had actually written it about six months before it was published, but it was still at my prior institution, um, NYU School of Medicine. And I didn't feel comfortable with it being published until I had finally and officially left. Um, but I had been thinking, you know, I'd been there actually about 10 years um, on faculty. It was an associate professor of emergency medicine. And in the last two years I was there, I was actually handpicked for a diversity leadership role at the medical school. I was super excited about it. I loved 
uh, attending events with our students, mentoring them, and working on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. So I got my, essentially my, what I thought was my dream role and come to find out it really was just a figurehead role that the institution didn't actually want me to get any work done. They just wanted to say that they had someone in that role. And I have to say, I was very naive going into it. So it just crushed me. And not only that, but there was a lot of um, sort of muzzling and silencing over the work that we could do within the Office of Diversity Affairs. Everything had to be vetted by the sort of more senior leadership uh, who are mostly older white men. So essentially you had them telling us what we could and couldn't say, and that was not going to fly with me. It sounds as if, you know, I mean, your experience, sadly, it, it mirrors so many experiences of other folks in these roles, particularly for what, I, what we've observed in living corporate of black women. Right. So it's like, like you said, as figurehead, they put these people in position who have incredible profiles. Right. Like I rarely see black women in these roles. And I recognize, um, you know, you were in a, like a medical space. So you having um, your your advanced degrees was not, I guess, rare, but. I've seen that in other spaces too, where people have like just all types of edu additional education certifications and long backgrounds only to get in these positions and really just kind of do whatever, you know, the white folks tell them to do, right? Like yeah. they can't really move outside, right. of, outside of that. Right. And, and, and frankly, like even, you know, that the, the diversity and inclusion roles, they're really, not only are they beholden to um, white male executives, they're really also beholden to the organization's PR and legal departments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there were times when I remember we had, uh, I organized a grand rounds on, uh, which was a, you know, a very large official presentation and I invited a black woman law professor who does work on race, law and health to come speak on patient discrimination against providers. She had written a piece in the New England Journal of Medicine on kind of an algorithm pathway with how uh, institutions, healthcare institutions should handle patients who are essentially racist. And I invited her and she gave this great talk. It was really well attended, but there was a reporter from the Wall Street Journal in the audience. And she wanted to speak to me after the grand round since I organized it and since I was very familiar with the topic. And I remember that the media office basically was like, well, we need to talk to you before you talk to her. <laughs> and I was like, why? And essentially they just wanted to make sure I didn't say anything inflammatory or what they perceived as inflammatory. And, and, and you know, I don't think that it's, this is something that was unique to NYU. I think this, is, this happens right. in a lot of organizations and institutions. No, I mean, you're a hundred percent right. In that like, so, well, and you're speaking to something that just is like gets me. I'm I'm gonna be honest with you, Doctor Blackstock. It's like this, this constant catering to white fragility, white um, and into into this white moderate, right? So we'll say, well, we don't want to say anything inflammatory. Like, if like by what standards? Like, what is the rubric that defines inflammatory language? How did yeah. you come up with that? Right? It's just like, well, we don't want to say anything that's gonna make anyone uncomfortable. Okay, how do? You, but how are you coming up with that? Right. And so then, and so then, like it becomes a sliding scale again of fragility, um, yes. as it as it pertains to just like 
you know, well, what can we, what can we say? What we, what can't we say? And so then we end up not even speaking, yes. you know, who, like not only who are we talking to, what are we even talking about? Right. Yeah. Essentially. And, and all of this to, um, to appease white people, to not make them feel uncomfortable. And it's and essentially, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I mean, I guess Audrey Lord has that saying about like, I think being, being silent and then speaking up that either way you're going to get backlash. So you might as well yes. speak up. And yes. so that's how I feel. I mean, I think, you know, while these institutions, they, they muzzle us and they silence us. I think at the same time we have to speak up. And that's why I wrote that piece because it was sort of like enough is enough. And if I can't do the work in this institution, I'm going to do it another way. Well, you know, speaking about your piece, I want to read a little little excerpt because you, first of all, you know, every, every, like throughout the, like while I was reading it, you know what I mean? Like while I was reading the piece, and the piece I'm talking about, we're going to hyperlink it in the um, in the show notes. But the piece is, you know, why black doctors like me are leaving faculty positions in academic medical center. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this piece is that, you know, you're talking about academic medicine, but everything you said, and I know that you've gotten plenty of folks who have hit you up and told you this already by now, is everything that you've said is directly one to one apples to apples uh, applicable to any in- any industry with black professionals. Right. right? Yeah. So so. So I'm reading it right, and I'm and I'm I'm just reading it. So here's here's one here's an excerpt that I just sticks out to me, and I sent it to a couple of my mentors um, and some friend colleagues. Black faculty members have cited lack of mentorship and sponsorship, barriers to promotion and advancement, and lack of supportive, sometimes hostile work environment as factors in their attrition from academic medical centers. In addition to the typical obligations of academic faculty, they're often expected or told to execute diversity efforts, such as chairing diversity committees, mentoring diversity uh, minority trainees, and the like, and then are rarely recognized or compensated for this valuable work. My goodness, hold on. Just ridiculous. Fire. Yeah. Thank and I you. just <laughs> I, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about about this, like this lack of like in your experience and in your space, um, when you say lack of mentorship and sponsorship, and then you also say barriers to motion, like how are those things different? Like, talk to me about that. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I think we essentially are um, without any support in these environments, like there is no one mentoring us. There's no one sponsoring us. And I even thought about my own experience that while I was in academic medicine, I had accomplished so much, but at the same time felt like I hadn't, but I really had. And I I had done so without really any formal mentorship, without anyone who was like, oh, Uche, how can I help support you? Or um, finding someone who's doing similar work as me. It just just was not there. And that that is the case for a lot of, of Black faculty. Um, in those like predominantly white uh, institutions. But then, and it's sort of like, okay, so then I also feel like I'm, I'm working hard and I deserve to be promoted, but because I'm I'm not having any support or given any support, I cannot, ha- I, and I'm trying to meet, meet the criteria needed to be promoted, right? And then they have this, you know, these institutions have these very traditional ideas of what valuable work is and what valuable work is not. And right. so, you know, is it the number of papers that you've published, right? Like that often is considered, um, you know, very prestigious in medicine. And if you've done a different kind of work where you've, you've impacted students or you've mentored students, and, you know, we definitely are mentoring a lot of, 
of our own students, you know, black students and other students of color, like that's just not given as much um, value, a place, uh, not enough value is placed on that. And so I went up for promotion and my department said I had everything needed to be promoted from assistant to associate professor. And I was denied the first time I went up for promotion. And I literally felt blindsided because I had been commended for the work that I did. My, my internal department committee unanimously voted me up for promotion. And then when I went to the school's committee, they did not agree. And I have, and I, I can't help but think it's because the kind of work that I was doing, again, was not, was not valued. Um, I also think that, you know, you know, being, being a black woman and people seeing my application, I don't, I think there are probably some people who didn't feel strongly in support of me. And that's just being, <laughs> that's just being yeah. honest, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that first time my, my promotion got denied and I went back to my department and we did, we did a few things, not that, and nothing major, not revised, but then I had to go back up and I got promoted. But that experience like I said, blindsided me because I thought I was doing everything right. That's the other thing. We think that we're doing everything right. Everything that we're supposed to be doing, right? We're working hard. Um, you know, we're, tr we're not, we're trying not to ruffle any feathers, right? And things still don't work out. <laughs> so again, like Audrey Lord said, you still, we still have to, you know, make a commotion. And I, I realized that after that promotion denial that I was, there was no way I could stay there. I felt so utterly just betrayed, undervalued, underappreciated. And as I said in the article, like this is not just my experience. You know, you, you can talk to lots of black faculty and I know it's been documented in the literature, but many of us have this experience where when we go up for promotion, uh, you know, we are, we are not, um, you know, we're, we're not given the promotion and this is not unusual. You know, you say you th we think we're doing all the right things. I'll, I'll push a step further: is we're told that we're doing all the right mm, things. We're, right. We're we're given the parameters by which to earn, you know, this next level, whatever that may be. And then when we finally get up and we say, "Okay, well, here it is," then there's some there's some goalpost movement, right? There's some excuse. Right. There's some reason as to why this isn't enough. I mean, I have I have my own examples. You, but, but before I get there, I like I'm not speaking from like the uh, like academic medicine perspective, but more so from like just corporate America is like, I talk to black and brown folks who sit in like the top positions, like the one or two people that'd be up in there. Right. And, right. and I'm talking to them and they're miserable. They're miserable. Or yeah. we're having conversations. They go, man, I just love what you're doing to live in corporate. Man, you got to keep it up. And I'm like, can you help me? Though? Like, <laughs> you, right. you, you got right. bread. Like you have bread. Like I, like I'm your title, your title alone. I know you're making at least seven, $800,000. Right. Can you do something like, hey, you you know X, Y, and Z? Can you talk to? And it's just there's so much there's so much fear, like the tightrope right. is so thin and the safety net is so small, they can't afford, and also they don't feel like they can afford to risk anything. And I'm like, okay, if this is what it looks like to be in these positions, right? Right. If the more if the higher up you go, the less power you actually have then what are we doing not to mention right. not to mention those who don't sit at the top those who are in the middle or most more often so at the bottom what are we what are we doing we're all fighting to get at this position that like what do we think is going to happen when you get up there like right. it's, it's not like it's not for us yeah no i i mean unless we're going to get into that position and change stuff like structurally within the organization 
You know what I mean? Like, right. I think there's some people who enjoy being the only at the top. You know what I mean? Those types yes. that yes. they're happy being the only black person. But for me, I'm like, no, I want to pull everyone up with me. I want everyone to go. Like, we all go up together. Otherwise, what's the point? I just, I, I don't, I don't know. And I, you know, and I've had these conversations and I've, and I've talked to people who say, no, I'm going to bring everybody with me. But then it's, but every time they have an opportunity to actually bring somebody with them, there's some excuse that they have. Well, they're not really here. They're not really, it's okay. You're still mm. gatekeeping. I had a conversation with somebody some months ago mm. about this very thing. I was like, you know, you know, they were a senior uh, leader in the, in the organization and, you know, they were very passionate and I was very transparent with them. I said, look, you know, I have a, I have tension when I when I see black folks in in these like mid-level manager positions who've been with the company for, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, ten plus years. And I said, my experience with them is that like 90 percent of the time they're, they're operating as as gatekeepers. They're not really here for like dismantling anything. They don't really you know, they, they're, they're, they're happy about being, you know, one of the onlys in, in the spaces that they engage. And it's it's tough, right? It's like, and I, and and like, and I here's my thing: like, I'm not trying to demonize black folks for seeking to survive, but I'm not really speaking to survival at this point. I'm I'm trying to speak to what community are you building into, right? Like that's that's really where my that's yeah. where the bulk of my question comes from. Yeah, no, I hear you, I hear you. I I, I think that um. No, and, and I have to even with my own experience, especially over the last few years, I've had to just every now and then just reflect being like, Uche, one, are you doing the work that you want to do? But also, are you like, who are you helping? Like what other people, you know, who are who are you um, providing support to or who are you trying to bring up with yourself? Because I have to admit, sometimes it's it's easy to get lost in that success because that's what we're always like fighting for. Right. But it's almost like we need people around us to always make sure that to remind us that, hey, remember what's important and what you need to and what what work needs to be done. Let's talk about this, this, uh, this panoramic, OK, because, um, you know, we, we it's been over a year. Um, Dr. Blackstock, I feel like I'm ill equipped to ask super targeted questions. I would really like to give you some space just to talk about your perspective on. COVID-19, its impact in black and brown communities, language around this whole vaccine hesitancy thing and, and, and really how the media is framing, how the media is framing the vaccine and uh, poor communities. And then also what organizations, institutions can be doing to create more equitable access to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, this is vaccine rollout. It's, it, you know, it's been interesting to say the least. You know, we're still seeing the most recent numbers from last week is that we are nowhere near um, have enough like vaccine representation or vaccine uptake um, in, in Black communities and other communities of color, even for our share of the population, let alone for our share of COVID cases and hospitalization. So we are behind. Absolutely. And you know, my, you know, my sister and I, we've been, um, we wrote two op-eds um, on vaccine equity. Um, one was about what we felt like the Biden-Harris administration needed to do to prioritize Black communities. And I think, you know, part of that was ensuring that we are collecting racial and ethnic demographic data, that we have that data that is complete so that we, so that the government, right, and the administration could respond 
um, as necessary to target resources um, to the communities that need it most. We also talked about, you know, these just these, how policy often is, you know, embedded with bias and racism, like these age cutoffs that have been used are not fair to Black people because we have shorter life expectancy. There are parts of the rural South where the average life expectancy for a Black person is well below those initial age cutoffs for the vaccine, right? And so when we're not using an equity lens, who suffers? It's, it's Black folks. Um, and so, you know, I, I do appreciate, you know, some of the efforts that the Biden administration is using, you know, putting Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith as the head of the Health Equity Task Force. She is bomb and just brilliant and amazing Black woman. Um, but I, I, I do think that more more can be done. And I think what that looks like is using like, um, we call them like the health equity metrics, um, like structural vulnerability index, looking at which communities have been hardest hit and taking the vaccines to the people. Like there's no way around it and making it easier for people to register and, um, to, and have vaccine distribution centers more locally. We know that works and to have it in people's physician offices and their churches uh, in community centers, right? So this is something that we are in an urgent time. And so we need an urgent response. And so I, I definitely do think that we need to put more resources in our, into our communities than is being currently being put. You know, you made a statement, Dr. Blackstock, about, and you talked about policy, and then you had some, some quantitative uh, data points to then connect those two things. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, how data informs policy? And I, I say that because, you know, I was having a conversation with a group um, and, and they're, I'm, I'm not going to air out the group on this podcast, but I will soon. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's a, like a fellowship and they're focused on, um, on equity. They're focused on racial equity, right? It's like a group. Okay. And I was talking to them about like data analysis and like looking at, looking at data to then help inform policy. And they did not really help. They didn't really see the connection between data mm -hmm. and policy. I'm curious, like, what mm -hmm. would you what would you say to those who, who say, well, we're not really focused on data. We're just focused on policy. Like what would, what would be your response to that? I would say that, um, you know, data informs policy. Like you cannot have policy without the data. I mean, how do you know where to target your intervention? <laughs> what do you, how do you know what outcomes to look at? So I think the data piece is, is crucial. It's crucial. So that, that's interesting that that organization um, said that. Because when I'm thinking about even all of the, the policy changes that need to happen in response to the pandemic, right, we are looking at what are the needs of the communities? What is, what is the data showing us in terms of who's being hospitalized and who's, who's surviving? What, does, what do the institutions need in terms of resources? So um, definitely the data, the data and, um, has to inform policy. I can't see how it can't. Yeah, no, I, I, here's my thing. I'm going to be honest with you. Living corporate is really therapy for me, Dr. Blackstock, because I'll be out here talking to folks. I'm like, well, who raised y'all? Like, I know that don't make any sense I know. to me. You know I what know, I mean? Right? It's, it's scary. Mm -hmm. It's scary out here. Um, all right. So, now, look, we, we've been going for a while. You also made a statement about, um, you know, like, the, the sense of urgency still is not there. There's still much more to do. I'm, frankly, terrified right now. I, I have, I've gotten my, uh, my first dose. At the same time, you know, the numbers are, are scary still. And, you know, so I 100% agree with you about just where we're at. Talk to me about 
what more you think should be done. Like if you had to give me like three or five or whatever, like give me, mm-hmm. give me those things that you think are just critical that can happen and they, they need to be enacted right now. Yeah, no, I mean, simply we need to get as many vaccinations into the arms of people because the more people who are vaccinated, the less chance that, you know, these variants have to spread and change and mutate even further to be even more resistant. Um, I also think that we need to have our state and local leadership reconsider all of these this re- reopening that's happening. I mean, I know that people are tired and I, and I don't think it has to be all or none. I, I think that we can put, you know, certain restrictions in place or just pause reopening. But what we're seeing now, we know why it's happening. People are getting tired. States relax their um, re- their restrictions and the variants are here. And then the, and the other thing is we need more surveillance for the variants because you know United States has not had a robust surveillance system uh, for for viruses of this type and um, you know we need to see where they are because we know that's also driving uh, the, the, the search I mean those are like the three things like increased vaccinations um, putting back restrictions in place uh, and incre- improving our, our surveillance of, of, of these viruses. I, you know, I think that we're learning a really tough lesson. One, we have a, a fragmented decentralized healthcare system. So that's one reason we're, ha- we're not as successful as, for example, the UK in vaccinating people. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that you know, we've underinvested in our public health infrastructure. And that's another reason why we don't have a robust surveillance system or we can't respond quickly um, to these sort of emergencies. And then I also think that there's just something inherent in U.S. American culture. I think people are very individualistic. <laughs> and I think that when you're, when you're in a situation like this one where you need a collective response, you'll probably find people are more willing in, in, you know, to do so in other cultures, right? Like, it's you, so know, true. I'm it's, sure, you know, I'm sure West African cultures, but not not in this country because people are seeing these restrictions as an infringement on their on their personal rights. And I'm I, and, I, and I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know even know what to do with that, Doctor Blackstock. It's like at a certain point, do you want to live or not? Nah? Like so many people, so many people have died. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, what like what do you need? Like what like what do you need? No, I know, I know. I just. I mean, I'm over here just thinking about like even like a like a sound effect. But I don't, I don't have one. I just, I don't know what to say. Um, now, I, yeah. Now, now let me let me let me put on my um, I'm not gonna say conspiracy hat, but let me put on my cynical hat, okay? Because and I want you to tell me, Zach, you tripping? Or Zach, no, you're not really tripping. <laughs> All right. Now, we got these various vaccines. Some of them have a higher level of efficacy than others. Is it valid to have a concern that black and brown communities? we'll get the vaccine with the lower efficacy. No, I'm not. So I think the one thing that hasn't been communicated well is that the reason for the the differences in the efficacies are because, you know, the first set of vaccines the you know, the mRNA vaccines, those two that came out, those trials happened at a time where we didn't have one widespread transmission like we have now. And uh, also, the variants weren't around. And the reason why we're seeing the differences with those two vaccines and the adenovirus vaccine, the one dose one, 
is because you know there was just there's a south there was a South African variant around there was I'm sorry the 1357 <laughs> variant I should I should say that um, that variant was around and the B117 variant from the UK so it, you know the, the trials occurred at different times so it's like comparing efficacy is like apples and oranges but what is important to know is that of the endpoints that we care about very deeply severe disease hospitalization and deaths they're all equivalent and so that's that's helpful to yeah know. yeah yeah and that's and, and that is most important and we also have um some evidence that all of the vaccines decrease um transmission of the virus so not only will you hopefully not get sick if you're infected but you most likely won't even pass the virus on to someone else well that's that's important though because you know what i mean like i've i've put a lot of things on hold you know what i mean trying to just trying yeah. to stay trying to stay alive you know i got my you know you you know emory she's you know, people want to see her in person, you know, all the things have been, you know, just paused. Now, um, right. Now, Dr. Blacksock, this has been a dope conversation. I told you I was gonna get you up out here in a reasonable time. Uh, before I let you go, what are you excited about most in terms of what you have going on, you know, with your sister, with yourself? Like, just talk to me about what is it that if folks want to learn more about what you're working on, like, plug your stuff. This is your space. I want to give you some time to write. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, I've been so busy this year with advancing health equity, just working with a lot of different types of healthcare related organizations in different capacities, some as advisory roles, others I'm doing organizational assessments of their racial equity culture. Uh, for others, I'm doing a, uh, an audit of a medical school's admission and financial aid policies to make sure it's equitable. So just a lot of different projects and just also trying to figure out like how big or how small I want advancing health equity to be. Um, I'm kind of leaning more towards wanting it to be just sort of a boutique firm. I'm working with maybe two or three clients a year. And um, I know, so I have time for the other piece and the other piece is the media work that I've been doing, which I kind of fell into, but I thought was really important way of getting that health equity message out there. So whenever I'm on, yes. on television, thank you. I try to make sure that also I put my perspective as a black woman, as a black physician, as, you know, as someone who is deeply committed to health equity, making sure that I frame all of my comments, you know, on and my discussions on, on, on media about, about that. So um, I'm feeling very blessed in that respect. Well, you, let me tell you something. I saw you and I was like, oh, it's, not, it's so crazy. So, you know, when I first interviewed your sister and I told her, I was like, you know, it's wild. Cause like, you know, black folks are like this, right? You know, when one of us win, it feel like we all winning. You got on there. Right. I was like, oh, snap, Dr. Black Stocks on CNN. It was crazy. I, man, like you got it. Like, please like continue to do your thing. Thank uh, you. You know, you know, I did ask Dr. Black Stock. I asked her, you know, if the, if the air horns were culturally appropriate and she said no. So I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna drop these air horns again. Ah. Thank you so much for being uh, on the show. Love it. We consider you a friend of the pod. Um, and and look, you know, I'm gonna add all the link, some links in the show notes. Make awesome. sure so you learn about the COVID uh, vaccine, your options. Look, you know, it's it varies state to state, but things have been opening up. So um, in terms of access, so my hope is that you check out the links in the show notes. Make sure you educate yourself. Take care of yourself. Take care of your family. And uh, Dr. Blackstock, we look forward to having you back soon. Thank you so much, Beth. Be well. All right. Peace. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network, hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards 
the leadership range is focused on having real, raw, soulful, and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the leadership range everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Look, I just want to thank Dr. Blackstock again. Make sure y'all check out the links in the show notes. Hey, if you haven't signed up for the vaccine, I want to say uh, the vaccine is now open to everybody over 18. So click the link in the show notes. Make sure you're signing up. You're doing what you need to do. Um, just take care of yourselves, y'all. Like <laughs> the goal is to get older. Shout out to anybody who watched the verses over the weekend. With Earth, Wind, Fire, and the Isley Brothers, you know. My biggest takeaway from all of that, besides the fact that beards are continue to be a cheat code, it's like a weave for your face. It's just, it's, you look so much, I mean, Ron Isley, I really didn't recognize him. I really didn't. For real, he looked great. Um, but beyond that, I also, <laughs> I also was reminded that the goal is to get older. Right? Like the goal is to be here. And let's do everything we can to be here y'all like if you're listening to this like make sure you click the link in the show notes if you haven't set up time to get your doses for the vaccine like do your thing we're gonna have some more content coming soon for your head top to really encourage you to uh, get out here and take these uh take this vaccine but in the meantime just hear me when i say take care of yourself all right uh until next time make sure if you haven't already give us five stars on apple uh, podcast. Don't be a hater. Don't give us four stars. I see some of y'all giving us four stars. Now, our average is still five stars, so I ain't tripping. Right? Shout out to the five star voters. But some of y'all, I just, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. Like, what's going on? Email me and tell me why you're giving me four stars. Right? Why are you giving Tristan Layfield four stars? That's right. I'm, I'm going to personalize it. I'm going to make it personal. All right? <laughs> nah, but anyway, look, tell a friend. We appreciate you. We'll talk to you next time. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.